Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Welcome. Today, I want to introduce you to Louis Gravance. He is a keynote speaker who worked for Disney for 25 years, and he is the author of Service is a Superpower. He is often referred to as the guy who can make Disney service concepts work outside of Disney. Welcome, Louis. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Darshan? Excellent. Excellent. So tell me about your journey and the pivotal moments that you had to get you where you are now. Well, you know, like <laughs> it was circuitous. I think like, like for it is for many, many people, but mine was, uh, was really weird to be perfectly candid. I had a very weird, uh, <laughs> career arc. I started acting, portraying children on television and on stage when I was still a teenager and I am a short uh, gentleman. I only grew to be five, two and a half. And I looked young. So I, I always say I played 15 year olds for 15 years, which is almost the truth. And then, uh, and then one day at a ridiculous age of 25, I was doing a Mattel toy commercial, which is ridiculous in and of itself. But I was with these other guys and we, and we were doing this commercial that was about a handheld computer toy. And this was the, you know, early 80s. So it was quite large, this toy. And the, and the commercial was these four guys running around a playground, just having a grand time playing this toy. So we're shooting the commercial and all of a sudden the director looks worried and calls me over and he uh, looks sheepish and says, I, I, I don't know how to say this. But, um, see, uh, well, um, see, okay, look, we need to shave your hands. And then I sort of looked odd and he said, okay, here's the deal. Everything's fine. You look like all the other kids. And then we go in for the product shot and you all throw your hands in and it looks like three kids and a hobbit put their hand into the shot. And Darshan, I always think of that as the beginning of the final curtain <laughs> of my career of playing kids. And then it dawned on me, you know, I had never played an adult professionally on stage, screen, TV, anything. And then it dawned on me, I hadn't played an adult off stage. And what I'm grateful for is that I had this moment, this revelation of seeing what a punk, what a self-entitled punk I had become. And I had the gift of being ashamed of myself. And then I ended up being a waiter. And typically, you know, you're a waiter and then maybe you get on television. Well, see, my plan <laughs> was to be on, be a professional actor for 12 years and then go wait tables at a steak restaurant. One of the best gifts, because that's where I learned the connection between delighting an audience and delighting a customer and the power that it gives you. And that's where I learned serving one table at a time, delighting one guest at a time, one at a time, one at a time. I saw that every time I did it, it made me stronger. It equipped me to do other things. Serving someone and something other than yourself is 
not to be trite, but it was a superpower. And I must tell you, I didn't know how to wait tables. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. And I was quite clumsy. And I thought, I better figure out how to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pretend I work at Disneyland. I'm going to be so uber gracious that no one will ever feel good about being mad at me because I'm still a lousy waiter. And it worked. And then delighting one guest at a time, pretending like I worked in Disneyland. After almost five years, out of nowhere, just as I'm about to go into restaurant management, I get this call. So this is going to be weird um, and out of nowhere, but do you want to go work at Disneyland? Because somebody's looking for you. They need some little guy to, to be a singing mortician outside of the Haunted Mansion and entertain guests while they're stuck in the queue line over the summer. Do you want to do that? And I went, yes. <laughs> so you've been auditioning for it uh, for years as a waiter. <laughs> yeah, and that began. No, I must tell you, my first day did not begin well. Because so they put me in this fantastic costume, this fantastic, I look like this, you know, 1900s undertaker with a top hat and, and tails and, and gloves and spats. And I it's just magnificent. And I, I feel so pumped up and I walk out of the dressing room and I start heading towards the haunted bench. And I see this guy with a little girl in a stroller and he stops me. And I say hello to the little girl. And the little girl looks a little afraid. And the father goes, you know who that is, honey? You know Jiminy Cricket. So I didn't know what to do. So I went, well, sir, time to go. And I went to the haunted mansion. Only no one had told anyone that there was going to be an entertainer starting that day. So I jump up on the appointed platform where I'm supposed to go, and I start. And it takes all of 30 seconds for security to haul me off backstage and ask me who I am and what I'm doing. So that was my inauspicious beginning. But from there, again, delighting one guest at a time, like one frame in a movie that creates the illusion of life, I got stronger and stronger. And then I went from an entertainer I went into training and development. I began someone that started having an important voice in the training and development of new hires at the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. And, and then I, I got moved to the Disney Institute to be a professor on customer service. And then a couple of years after that, a few years after that, I find myself in the boardroom at Bank of America in Charlotte, where they've hired me to run a multi-million dollar customer service improvement campaign. And I think to myself, I barely showed up for high school. And I'm here completely and utterly through service is how someone like me got somewhere like this. And so it's now my life work to inspire other people to be, and I don't mean do, I mean be, everything that they can be, that they're already hardwired to be. You know, I always say that, well, first of all, that great service serves the server first, but finding your, your highest power is, is rarely a matter of discovery or, or, or invention, and more often a matter of acceptance. And if you think about that, all of our legends and our faiths sort of tell the same story. 
that heaven or nirvana or perfection or operating at your highest power is something to be accepted rather than invented. It's sort of like the end of The Wizard of Oz, where she goes, okay, see, yeah, you could have always gone home. <laughs> Anytime you wanted. It was, it was a matter of not going and finding it. It was a matter of acceptance. Yeah, it's quite a journey. It's really interesting. And I want to go back for a moment to when you were a waiter and you came to the realization that people were there not only just to eat, but they actually wanted to be delighted. How did you realize that? Because I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people do go out to eat, but it's not just to eat, but it's also to be a bit entertained, right? Well, and some of that could have been my deep need for approval, <laughs> Darshan, as many entertainers have. So I, I, maybe I saw, and I, and I, they always say there's no business like show business, and I think I say that's a lie. There's no business but show business, and I, I always thought of of a table as an audience. This was just a natural way of thinking to me. I don't know that I would have known how to think otherwise, but it's something that I try and instill in others to think about. Because every company and brand that we work for is essentially doing what the Walt Disney Company is doing, which is telling stories. It is engaging customers or clients or patients into a shared narrative. And I say shared narrative. Because when a company gets there, the customers start doing half the work. One of the reasons the Walt Disney World Resort still has an impeccable service reputation is because the guests are doing half the work because they show up believing. And customers find what they look for. So the typical guest at the Walt Disney World Resort is searching for excellence, You know, is looking for magical moments. They're ready. They approach a custodial worker at the Walt Disney World Resort just to ask where the bathroom is, anticipating that they are going to have uh, a better than average experience. So they're already setting the context. They're already helping to provide the context simply by what they believe. So you're often known as the guy that can make Disney service concepts work outside Disney. So what are the Disney core principles. Okay, well, one of them I just outlined, which is that, you know, that all business ultimately is some sort of show business and a shared narrative. That you're not just selling things or providing a service. That every transaction is an emotional transaction. And this is something that is true in, in every business. That every transaction at its root is an emotional transaction. And one of the things that makes, I think, that company, the Walt Disney uh, Company, and the resort and the people so successful is that concept. And, and, uh, and there, of course, there are fundamentalists. Like, uh, you know, like, uh, let me put it to you this way. Disneyland was built and created in a year. And so, too, its service ethos, and just a little longer than that. Who do you think, I mean, obviously there were craftsmen and artisans and show people. What industry, other industry, do you think was pulled from, culled from to make that dream a reality? And most people are surprised. It's the military. Many of the people that brought Disneyland to life 
came from the military, or at least they were they were part of military contracts. So these were people that knew how to build things fast, and they knew how to create culture. And I always say one of the silver bullets then and today is Disney's adherence to language. The the and and that's one of the fundamentals that we drilled on that first day was was the the it started then the importance of language even to the point of re referring to the customers as guests and referring to your uh, uniform as a costume and anywhere that the guests see you is on stage they cannot see you it's off stage and at first that seems sort of cute but it, it does incredible things uh, to the consciousness and this is is a matter of consciousness when i was going to be a trainer of new hires they they have a, a process in place where if you're going to be that first day inspiration, they make sure that you learn a lot of the tasks of the people that you're going to be interfacing with. You're going to clean up hotel rooms. You're going to clean up bathrooms in one of the theme parks. You're going to follow a horse during a parade. You might play one of the costume characters. You might you know to get so you understand that these are jobs and tasks simultaneously so after a really rough couple of days of cleaning toilets uh i find myself behind tomorrowland with this lady and it was what she had done for 19 years was make pizza at the tomorrowland terrace for guests that she never met so she's back there and she shows me the process and after a couple of days of cleaning toilets this seemed fun darshan and it's clean and it's nice and there's music playing back there and she shows me you know the, the, the rudimentary you know task which is that this this dough is going to come down on the conveyor belt i'm going to be armed with a brush and cheese and as it comes down i'm going to sweep it with the sauce i'm going to spray it with the cheese precisely and then i'm going to put it to the left or right depending on whether it needs pepperoni okay so she shows me this, and I think this is a blast. And I start humming. And oh, I'm just having a great time. And she's watching me, you know. And I imagine I must have appeared flip. Because finally she's watching this, and she's watching this. And she can't take it anymore. And she comes up to me, and she goes, honey, honey, oh, baby, oh, honey, honey. You got to get that cheese all the way around that pizza real even, because if you don't, it ain't going to be a good show for my guests. This woman never interfaced with a guest, and yet she knew the difference between her task and her job. Her task was to make pizza. Her job was to delight a guest. And, and, and I thought, that is the consciousness to inspire. That, that right there that was it was wired into this person and, and i never forgot that as a core inspiration you talk about delighting what does it mean to delight a customer versus satisfying a customer okay in great service you have to do what you don't have to do that's what it means it means doing more than you have to do it means proactively do taking responsibility for the shared moment, that the, the shared now. It is taking responsibility for that moment and doing more than you have to. 
it's not just exceeding the guest's expectations, it's exceeding your own. And every time you exceed your own expectations, you broaden the horizon of what is available and achievable to yourself. And this is the thing that may sound selfish, but what I like to drive home, it is impossible to delight a guest and not get stronger. I really want people to understand that whether we can see it in our, in our vision at that moment or not, every time we exceed anyone's expectations, we broaden the horizon of what we're willing and able to be. Bam. And it is simultaneous. It is simultaneous. It is whether you can see it or not. In fact, usually you cannot. Which is why I tell people to think of their service moments like one frame in a movie, one frame in a cartoon or an animated feature, which I must I people spend hours and thousands of dollars on one frame, and it's beautiful. But it doesn't tell you a story, and it doesn't engage you in a narrative. You have to see 24 of those beautiful pictures past your eye a second for you to actually see the life that's being created. And the same is true with our service moments. Man, we are right on the moment. <laughs> so it's hard to get perspective. You gotta step back and you gotta look at those service moments, 24 frames a second, and then step back. And when you see that, you see the story you're creating. How do you train people to do that? First of all, you tell the truth. <laughs> and when somebody says, what's in it for me? I, I, this is what I tell smaller companies that uh, I've had the pleasure of you know, doing work for and, and doing some consulting work for. When somebody asks the question, what's in it for me? Be prepared to answer it. That's one of the things. To, to step up to the challenge of saying, this is what's in it for you. We can articulate what's in it for our guests, clients, and patients. That's going to be easy. But to articulate what is at stake for them at each and every moment. And the first day at the Walt Disney World Resort, you'd come in. And you'd walk, okay, so you'd walk in the building. <clears throat> and I, and, okay, so I'm going to tell you something. So, so when people would make fun of the Disney University, which is where the training is held, Sometimes they would call it a, a pixie dust uh, factory. Or they'd say, oh, you know what? That's the, that's the brainwashing facility. And the reason they would say that is because it is a little bit of a brainwashing facility in that every sense is appealed to. From the moment you walk up and you touch a doorknob, which is the doorknob that you recognize from Alice in Wonderland, from that moment, from the first touch, you walk in and all around the building, you're going to see costumes, artifacts, old ride vehicles that start conjuring up memories. They start conjuring up your memory, your emotional connection, so that you can start to understand what is at stake for the guests because of what these things meant to you. So it, it, it's a, it, it is a um, shamelessly uh, emotional affair and we would tell the story of of, of walt and okay so he, this is a great way to to talk about how how language and story ground every transaction to this day one of the stories i would tell and 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 i used to um, train the instructors 
The story that I insisted that we tell is a story about how Walt Disney is 65, he buys 45 square miles of Florida, and then promptly discovers he has a tumor the size of a walnut in one of his lungs. So he finds himself at the hospital, which is across the street from his studio in Burbank. They remove one lung. His brother, who always handled the money behind the scenes, Roy, goes to see his brother in the hospital post-operation. And Walt is lying in the bed, and he's looking up at the ceiling, you know, intently. And the ceiling was, you know, it was these series of squares with, with holes. And Walt's looking up at these ceiling tiles, and he, and he motions his brother to come over. And hoarsely, he says, okay, you have to listen to me. We need to do this differently than we did in California. And he's pointing to the ceiling. He goes, I, I want to put a lake in front of the Magic Kingdom that will act as an opening curtain so everybody gets the same opening shot of our show. And look, and, and he's pointing to the ceiling, and he's pointing to the ceiling, and he's showing his brother that he has mapped out all 45 square miles of that Florida in these ceiling tiles. So Roy leaves the hospital, and he calls Walt Disney's wife, Lillian, and he goes, you know what? This old buzzard ain't going to die. If for meanness alone, he's going to drag us all to this godforsaken swamp in Florida to build this thing called Epcot. I don't get it, but he's going to be fine. And that night he died. Walt Disney died. And so shortly thereafter, obviously, the company and the board meet, go, what are we going to do? Can we do this without Walt? And the brother goes, I don't know, but we have to try. And I got to tell you, we're not going to call this thing Epcot at first. I don't get it. And I'm going to tell you something else. We're not going to call it Disney World ever. It will always be known as Walt Disney World for two reasons. Reason one, so no one ever forgets. It was my brother that drug us kicking and screaming into the amusement park business. And reason two, so that we never become Ford, where everybody can tell you what one is, where you can get one, but nobody can tell you anything about Henry Ford, what he dreamed, what he built, what he believed, what he created, no one. What he said, we will never become that. We will always be grounded and we will always be known as Walt Disney World. And to this day, you will not find a piece of official media that says Disney World on it to this day. And it sort of, it, 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 it sort of reiterates or it sort of exemplifies what I call the plan, the purpose, the language, the actions that are inspired by the perfect, by the, by the purpose and the language, and then the narrative, the plan, P-L-A-N, the shared narrative, where again, your audience and your guests help to tell the story with you. You know what I'm hearing between the language and the delight, it's really trying to connect at a deeper level with people you're communicating with. Isn't that it? It's true. And it's also finding a way, and we're clumsy about this. It's almost finding a way to discuss metaphysical principles in business. The do unto others principle. The, the giving is getting simultaneously principle. The you might not be able to see tangibly immediately what it is you're creating. These are sort of metaphysical principles for, for business, I think, that, that again, uh, as a culture we're clumsy with, 
but are 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 uh, searching, you know. And those things don't often uh, fit nicely with KPIs, do they? <laughs> well, you know, not on paper. But once again, if you step back and look with perspective, it could be argued they do. In the long run, I think you can see it, right? The the results. Yeah. Because, you know, remember, an investment of yourself is an investment in yourself. And that's true for individuals. And it's true for the collective consciousness of a business. And there is a collective consciousness of a business that lives and breathes like a person. I, I, okay, I, how I've learned that is I, bam, bam, worked for two huge financial institutions, Bank of America, and then right on the heels of that because of the success of that program, which was called, by the way, Spirit to Serve. Spirit, to, you know, so there you go. I mean, so right after that, then I, I did some work for ING Financial, both huge financial entities. However, the collective consciousness of those entities was profoundly different. And one of them was more successful than the other. And this is, and I, 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 I really, because I was young at consulting you, and I, I really concerned myself with why had the second endeavor not been as it was successful, but not as successful as the endeavor, the first endeavor with Bank of America. And then I realized what it was. I realized that the 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 collective consciousness and the the team at Bank of America realized they had a challenge to be met, recognized that there was a problem where I found at the time, the ladies and gentlemen at ING Financial thought their service was great and the issue was the ignorance of their customers. <laughs> so that taught me that when I go and I look at now, and what I, the, one of the first things I like to see is, I like to see stats that, that match up that, or, or that compare uh, guest or customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction. And what you will invariably see is these numbers tag each other close and consistent, almost always. Occasionally, you will uh, find a situation where uh, the guests are happier than the people that are working for the guests, and then you'll have to deal with that. But your biggest problem is gonna be, if you look at those stats, and if the customer scores are very low, but yet the employees just think they're fantastic. That's where you have an issue. That's, at least that's been my experience in trying to, you know, be a service guru. Interesting. You've stated that the wand learns from the wizard and the wizard learns from the wand. What do you mean by that? And how do you apply that to service? Okay, so <laughs> that's a great segue into getting to, okay, so, Obviously, I get unusual opportunities because of my unusual background. So I was invited to be part of the opening of one of the Harry Potter books. I did not know very much about Harry Potter at the time. Uh, neither did I know that Harry Potter fans could equal the passion of Disney fans point for point, you know, as far as their passion for detail. So... I was part of the opening the Ollivander wand experience where they wanted to replicate the scene that goes on in the movie and in the, in the book precisely. And they wanted to create that moment, you know, 
dozens if not hundreds of times a day where the wand chooses the child. So I like to discuss everything that goes into that. I mean, you walk into that room and it looks exactly like it does in the movie, even though it is ridiculously inconvenient for a theme park to have a room where only 27 people can be. They do it out of adherence to the story and J.K. Rowling's insistence. It sounds, you hear, same music that you're going to hear in that scene in the movie. You're going to walk in and the scene is going to be replicated precisely word for word. The wand keeper is going to come down and go, welcome to all of others, makers of fine ones since 382 BC. They're going to pick a child. The scene is going to play where they try one wand and it causes mayhem. They try another one, it causes mayhem. Just as in the Harry Potter world, the third wand gets the, t- the child or the adult touches the wand. The room ignites with magic. Uh, a, a heavenly chorus comes out of nowhere. Air, air blows up under the child so that their hair sort of springs up. And then the one keeper goes, Oh, that is uh, whatever it is. That is the one divine, and it's chosen you. Now, what has happened here is that the wand keepers actually cast a product with a customer, which goes on in every business. And says, so this one is chosen you. And then they do this amazing pass-off where they go, now, my assistant will answer all of your questions and go over your wand options. But remember, the wand learns from the wizard. The wizard learns. <laughs> They walk out into the hallway and the attendant looks at the child and the parents and goes, congratulations on being selected. Will you be purchasing your wand today? And I must tell you, very few people say no. And I'd like to hold up one of these things and make the point that this is a stick. A $60 stick or is it think about all of the people hands gestures emotion that had to go into changing that thing from a stick to a one think about all the people that will never be thought or thanked thought of or thanked for changing that thing from the stick to a one from the custodial person in the room to the actor to the person who brings up the sale to the person that dies the cast the rock the writer of the book, everyone, including the belief of the customer and guest that changed that from a stick to a one. And fundamentally, this is the question we all have to face each day. What's it going to be today? Sticks or wands? Because the fact of the matter is, it's both of those things. Just like a Disney would start a day going, okay, what's it going to be today? Magical memories are robots and rubber heads because, in fact, it's both. It's a matter of consciousness. Hmm. Interesting. You've talked about uh, delivering the finest service experiences uh, lead to developing a culture of respect and responsibility. What three steps can an organization take to achieve this? That's interesting. That's an interesting question because there are many. The first thing to do is to go over what I say is your plan your purpose, the language you're going to use to articulate and inspire that purpose and inspire the actions that 
that are going to uh, represent that purpose and the language. And then again, that shared narrative. So that the, the focus on the, the first thing they need to do is always focus on what is the core emotional product. For example, at Disney, they always said that their core emotional product was happiness. At Universal, it's adventure. You know, at Bank of America, it was the feeling of prosperity and security. So, so the first thing one must do is isolate and identify what is the core emotional product, the, the foundational and fundamental core emotional product. After that, of course, learn how to talk about it. But then, then the next thing is what we do, what they used to uh, call at Disney guestology, which is you really take a look and you map it out, just you storyboard it, almost like a Hitchcock movie. You storyboard the encounter from the moment your customer or client thinks of doing business with you, decides to do business with you, and follow that out. Follow it all, all those steps through of, of, of the encounter and storyboard it exactly like it's a scene in a movie. And there's going to be obviously various, because you're going to have various kinds of customers. But that, that's the first thing is who is your audience? And is when you're putting millions of dollars in a Broadway show. Who's going to want to see it? And, and those people that are going to want to see it, what kind of music are they going to want to hear? What kind of, you know, what kind of dance, what kind of dance are they going to like? What sort of sets and, and, you know, what period is going to appeal to them? That's the next thing that, that I would do. And then this is the other thing, and this is where most businesses I find fail, and especially in the financial industry where I've done a lot of work. They'll say to their team, they'll do a bait and switch, because what they'll say is, ladies and gentlemen, you know, what's most, because I'll, I'll, I was speaking at a lot of end of year banquets for, for credit unions and things. And so I'll hear, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so proud of us. Uh, what is most important we have to remember is that we are neighbors in the community. Our first and foremost responsibility is to be good neighbors in the community. And now we'd like to give awards for who sold the most. <laughs> boom, boom. Bait switch, bait switch, right there. <laughs> so you, the thing you have to do is give recognition for the values that your customers wish for the most and not the values you <laughs> need the most. And the other thing to do is to realize that the people that work for us have a new consciousness about brands the same way our customers do. Our customers no longer want to be a part of a brand's world. They want a brand to festoon and, and help to articulate their own brand. And the same is true with the people that work for us. We need to realize that they want to be the stars of their show. So when we recognize them and we recognize what they have been, there is great power in recognizing them in front of of family and loved ones. It's one thing to tell someone how magnificent they are to their face. It's one, another great thing to do it in front of their peers. But the power of having someone's family love that they work for you, I learned this from guys that own uh, McDonald's franchises. I would speak at the franchise meetings and they'd say, I, one of the wisest things anybody ever said to me, guys, you know what's really important to me? Mom has to love that they work for me. 
because there might be times I need them to stay or there might be times I ask something out of the ordinary and I need their family to have great pride that they work for me. And that's why I always make sure that I recognize and throw out recognition that their family, loved ones, girlfriends, spouses can see because it really helps to solidify the emotional bond between employer and employee. Think about that in relationships. How much harder it is to break up with somebody if you're close to their family. <laughs> you know what I mean? Think about you know, how, how much more complicated that is when, when you're entwined. Well, the same is true, I think, with employers. If, 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 uh, if the kids tell other kids how proud they are, what mom does or what dad does. And a lot of times, no one has ever articulated to the kids. <laughs> just what daddy does when they leave. So I, I just, uh, so you see what I mean? Recognition is a, is, is a magic wand and a sharp weapon that's usually just left on the ground or misused. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's very powerful. What trends or changes do you see impacting service as a superpower moving forward? I think something that I hear often, true or not, is there is a frustration with employers at reaching a generation under the age of 30 because they have accepted this idea that this is a selfish group of people and it is going to be impossible for them to uh, think of someone else or it's going to be harder for them to think about anything out of terms of what, except for what will, uh, what will make them feel better right this second. And I think that this is really bad thinking. I, I, and, I, and I think it's a miscalculation. Because what I think you're missing a point, which is that you, you haven't, we have not articulated. And what I said earlier, that an investment of yourself is an investment in yourself. And out of this frustration of inspiring this group, I think they're going to reach that point, which is so important when you realize that you're 100% ignorant about what to do next and you just stop talking <laughs> and allow, I would say you can't get a ship in a bottle until it's empty. And I think the bottle's just about empty. And, and at that point, I think that they're going to recognize this connection that allow your employees to be the star of their own show and not worry about that, to, to in effect, use that self-motivation to one, to one's, not be afraid of it, but to in fact employ it. What is perceived as sort of selfishness or self-centeredness, I think can be employed because if you face the truth, which is, yeah, go for it and realize, and, and realize that, uh, Again, shooting, I keep thinking of metaphors, but I keep coming back to the first one. Exceeding anyone's expectations is exceeding your own, thus being stronger. And I don't think we know how to articulate that. We're still trying to find creative ways to get people to do what we want them to do for us. Hmm. Can you give me an example of what you're talking about with the 30-year-olds that you've seen 
an organization that implement, and it's been really successful. Well, I have learned this. I have learned this, first of all, you know, I have a book that came out, as you mentioned, Services of Superpower, Lessons Learned in the Magic Kingdom. And it was, what made it hard to write the book is that at first I thought I needed to appeal to an HR sensibility. And so I tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed to write the book for years. And then when I realized who the audience for the book was, which was frontline employees, it sort of poured out really, really, you know, easily. And I can point to instances, you know, just think of the hundreds, yay, thousands of people that I knew at the Walt Disney World Resort that were in the situation that I, that I was in that had, that found themselves in fields that no one would have ever thought they would know success in because they facilitated what would have thought to have been a very um, simplistic service moment, I think. And I've seen examples all, oh my gosh, I mean, it's, it's every day, because especially if you look at who leads those theme parks, 75% of those people started at, as hourly employees. So I've seen it virtually everywhere. And as, and as I move up, I, I, I meet people all of the time that engage in this story and because of their own experience, because of their own experience of, of, of uh, you know, I'm, and it, you're, you're, you're inspiring me. My head is sort of spinning here, but there is also power in not being afraid of failure. And I have found that when I do my, my keynote talks about Disney, for example, my experience, it is much more powerful for me to talk about times where we failed, I failed, as opposed to showing up and saying, <clears throat> let me tell you about my fabulous Disney career. I know every magical thing that happened, you know, there's nothing that Disney doesn't do that isn't magical and wonderful. And, you know, I think people turn off to that. And I find that they're, they're much uh, more open when I say, look, this is what we tried to do like, and failed. And this is why we failed. Um, I think there's great power. You know, Walt Disney said this, that everybody needs to have a gigantic failure when they're young. But there's nothing, nothing more powerful. And, and, and I thought, well, you know, that happened to me, obviously. I was a child actor and lost everything. And again, it's that losing everything and really finally accepting a moment of ignorance so that you can build from that final point of, okay, I don't know. How, think about how many times you've heard of legends of great success stories who banged their head against the wall over and over and over. And it wasn't until they finally threw up their hands, you know, I don't know. This might not happen. <laughs> it wasn't until that moment where they threw up their hands and went, I don't know now what I'm going to do. That it happened. Then That's they, what they, happens. They, yeah. Pardon me, but they shut up long enough <laughs> to hear the answer. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think I there's, uh, there's truth. The people truly learn from experience versus just being told what to do. Right. You know, and, I literally, again, I sort of feel like I dodged your question, but that's because there's just, there's so many examples. There's a Starbucks here in Orlando, Florida, that I secretly call the Starbucks of former Disney executives because at 6, and I'm not kidding, man, before, before, like at 6 a.m., 
the former head of the entire resort is there doing work. And in a matter of two hours, you will see this is the Starbucks that they all go to and they all, you know, sort of meet up with. And if you look at these people, they were all people that on paper never looked like they were going to have careers in the theme park industry. They were all sort of this gigantic circus of misfits. And I mean that in the nicest way of people that had had quasi or some success in all sorts of other weird fields that then somehow find an application at Disney. And so, Again, an answer to you, there's just too many to enumerate the, the entire, you know, ship of fools <laughs> is, uh, you know, it used, okay. So it used to be said that the, the, best, the fastest way to be a Disney executive was to be a skipper on the Jungle Cruise because it seemed like something, you know, like the guy who ran all of the resorts for years and years and years famously got his start as the jungle, first Jungle Cruise operator, like a dollar an hour oh, in 1955. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still lives here in Orlando today. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So who in the world of customer delight would you love to have lunch with and why? I would like to bring a man named Van Arsdale Frank back to life. Who? Okay. So you would think of, and so when I worked at the Disney University and the Institute, they, they, they had this amazing curation and catalog and, and um, vault of films. And one of the things they used to do is when people were about to retire, they would put a camera in front of them and just let them talk. So the guy that created the Disney training, his name was Ben Arsdale France. He came, uh, he was, again, military area space uh, contractor. This guy is a crusty, liked to cuss, smoked, always kept a bottle of scotch in his, in his drawer. <laughs> and to listen to this guy talk about how the, this, like, n- not at all what you anticipate. And I, I think of this one story that he tells. And the guy's constantly got a cigarette in his mouth, you know, as did Walt Disney, by the way. So he's, uh, I mean, this, this is an example. So he goes, uh, so it's the night before Disneyland was opening and it's late and we were already kind of drunk. And he's, so he's telling the story. And we realized that there's this patch in Tomorrowland that we didn't have anything for. It was just dirt. Well, what are we, and again, he's using salty language as he tells the story of how. So Dave had a truck. And we get in this truck and we drive 50 miles to this farmer's land. And he tells us about how they start digging up plants and putting them in the truck and then planting them in Tomorrowland. Well, there's literally just hours before the sun is up. And they just put weird names. You know, they put these just weird names on the plants to make them look like they're exotic. And I would like to sit that person down. And, and, Something else, and sometimes when I see a may, I just saw Encanto the other night. It's an amazing piece of animation. And there are times when I would like, if only it were true that Walt Disney were frozen and about to be brought back to life, some people still believe. I would like to show him one of those animated movies and go, look at that. Look at what you helped create. Look at that. So I think the, 
I think above anything that would boggle his mind. What is available? Uh, yeah, what is available as far as creating what he used to call the illusion of life? I think would uh, truly fascinate him. Well, Louis, I've really enjoyed this. This is a great conversation. I appreciate all the wonderful stories you're sharing with us. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation another time. Sure. Well, you were very gracious. You've been very gracious throughout. And I appreciate that. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.